Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, and uh, just uh, very blessed to be able to bring you what we call the American view, that is the view of law and government held by the founders of our country. It's simply put in the Declaration of Independence, three principal points. First, there is a creator God who made all things. Secondly, uh, he is the one who has given us rights. All of our rights are God-given. And thirdly, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and to secure those God-given rights. And if government would stick to that job and that job alone, we would enjoy tremendous liberty and we would enjoy the blessings of liberty, which is what our Constitution in the preamble says it was created for. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me this morning is my wonderful collaborator, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. Mike Jeremy is, uh, is away this uh, this week, but uh, we uh, hope to have him back with us uh, next week. As we're dealing with the original federal government, and that was under the Articles of Confederation, we're looking at each of the Articles of Confederation, comparing them and contrasting them with the Constitution for this specific purpose. When we understand what the Constitution is saying, it was crafted in light of the Articles of Confederation. In a sense, their attempt or their, their purpose first at the uh, convention in Philadelphia was to amend the Articles, but because Rhode Island was not going to participate in any of the process, they couldn't amend it because it had to have a or unanimous approval of all 13 states. So they said, let's propose a new constitution. But that new constitution was in reaction to and development of and further perfection of the Articles of Confederation. Uh, they said in the preamble of the Constitution they were going to make a more perfect union, which, Phil, you right, rightly point out, that that's not good English. Your English teacher would give them a, a poor grade on that statement. But the idea was we had a union, and they actually called it a perpetual union under the Articles of Confederation, but now they were seeking to create a better union than that perpetual union under the Articles of Confederation which means many of the things in the Article of Confederation, they preserved transferring them directly into our Constitution. So to better understand our Constitution, it is invaluable to understand the Articles of Confederation. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts uh, this morning on Articles 6 and 7 of the Articles of Confederation? Whereas Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation suggested that some of that document had become a source for ideas that found their way into the Constitution of 1787, Articles 6 and 7 make that relationship apparent in the areas of foreign relations, interstate commerce, and the military. Let's talk about Article 6 first. Article 6 begins with this idea. No state, without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled, shall send any embassy to or receive any embassy from or enter into any conference, agreement, alliance, or treaty with any king, prince, or state. Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution stated this idea more concisely. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal. Article 6 of the Articles then continued. 
nor shall any person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States or any of them except any present emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince or foreign state. That corresponds to Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. No person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present, emolument, office, or title, or any kind whatsoever, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. This provision concluded the first paragraph of Article 6 of the Articles of Confederation. The fourth uh, paragraph, excuse me, just a second. Nor shall the United States in Congress assembled, or any of them, grant any title of nobility. And that corresponds to Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. The second paragraph of Article 6 stated, No two or more states shall enter into any treaty, uh, confederation, or alliance, whatever between them, without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled, specifying accurately the purposes for which the same is to be entered into, and how long it shall continue. Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution makes a simpler statement. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, and no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with any other, uh, with another state. Uh, the third paragraph in Article 6 of the Articles of Confederation states, no state shall lay any imposts or duties which may interfere with any stipulations in treaties entered into by the United States in Congress assembled with any king, prince, or state in pursuance of any treaties already proposed by Congress to the courts of France and Spain. Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution is more inclusive, but adds an exception. No state shall, without the consent of the Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws and the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state or, imp or on imports or exports shall be for the use of the Treasury of the United States, and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress." The fourth paragraph of Article uh, 6, the Card Articles of Confederation, begins, No vessel of war shall be kept up in time of peace by any state, except such number only as shall be deemed necessary by the United States in Congress assembled, for the defense of such state or its trade, nor shall any body of forces be kept up by any state in any time of peace, except such number only as in the judgment of the United States in Congress assembled, shall be deemed requisite to garrison the forts necessary for the defense of such state. This corresponds roughly with Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, 
or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Every state shall always keep up a well-regulated and disciplined militia and shall provide and constantly have ready for use in public stores a due number of filed pieces and tents and a proper quantity of arms, ammunition, and camp equipage. The state, the, I'm sorry, the idea of a state militia is mentioned in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, but the emphasis turned to, uh, to the control of militias by the federal government. The president shall be commander-in-chief of the uh, Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. This was problematic in uh, two counts. The first, the concept of calling the militia into service is undefined. And two, the state's responsibilities concerning the militia were no longer specific. This created an additional problem in that the Constitution was originally silent concerning the individual's right to bear corrected uh, in the Second Amendment to the Constitution, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Apparently, the Second Amendment was an attempt to kill two birds with one stone. By inferring the states had a responsibility to maintain a militia, and the individual had a right to bear arms independent of service in the militia. Unfortunately, those seeking to destroy the right to bear arms have subsequently attempted to distort the amendment's original meaning to exclude the individual's right to bear arms independent of service in the militia. In order to do that, it is necessary to ignore the language being necessary to the security of a free state. Secure from what oppressor? The Second Amendment does not limit oppressors to foreign governments, and the founding of the United States was occasioned by what its citizens considered to be an oppressive central government, that of Great Britain. The failure to clearly define when called into the actual service of the United States is similarly problematic. We should recall that the Second Continental Congress could have created a distinct and powerful executive branch if it wished. It didn't because it feared the direction, that direction of restoring the same evils it was fighting in throwing off British rule. The Constitution of 1787 was a monumental step back in the direction of the type of government that had prevailed prior to the War of Independence. It remains a mystery ratification of this deficient language in the Constitution. The fifth paragraph of Article 6 of the Articles of Confederation began, No state shall engage in any war without the consent of the United States and Congress assembled, unless such state be actually invaded by enemies, or shall have received certain advice of a resolution being formed by some nation of Indians to invade such state, and the danger is so imminent as not to admit of a delay till the United States in Congress assembled can be consulted. 
corresponding language in the Constitution is found in Article 1, Section 10. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. The concluding paragraph of Article 6 states, no state shall engage in any war without the consent of the United States and Congress assembled, unless such state be actually invaded by enemies or shall have received certain advice of a resolution being formed by some nation of Indians to invade such state, and the danger is so imminent as not to admit of a, of a delay until, until the United States and Congress assembled can be consulted, nor shall any state grant commissions to any ships or vessels of war, nor letters of mark or reprisal, except to be after a declaration of war by the United States in Congress assembled, and then only against the kingdom or state and the subjects thereof against which war has been so declared, and under such regulations as shall be established by the United States in Congress assembled, unless such state be infested by pirates, in which case vessels of war may be fitted out for that purpose uh, for that occasion and kept so long as the danger shall continue, or until the United States in Congress assembled shall determine otherwise. State exceptions to these provisions are very much reduced in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, keep troops or ships of, of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state, or with a foreign power, or engage in war, unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Let's look at Article 7. Article 7 of the Articles of Confederation states, when land forces are raised by any state for the common defense, all officers of or under the rank of colonel shall be appointed by the legislature of each state respectively, by whom such forces shall be raised, or in such manner as such state shall direct, and all vacancies shall be filled up by the state which first made the appointment. This language in the Articles was replaced with this in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. The Congress shall have power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. This is a significant reduction in the power of the states. The states retain the right to appoint officers, typically at the level of second lieutenant, but the Constitution is silent about ranks above that. In combat organizations, the typical rank of a platoon leader is second or first lieutenant, that of company commander, captain, that of the uh, battalion uh, commander, a lieutenant colonel, and that of the regiment, a colonel. Which governmental entity had the power to assign these appointed officers to these organizational units. Note the language. The Congress shall have power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia. 
Once the states had appointed the officers, they lost control, according to this language, since Congress has the power to organize and discipline the officer. While not stated, that implies that power to promote slash demote the officer. Giving Congress the power to arm the militia makes sense because if state militias are to be employed next to each other, state militias, uh, to other state militias, there needs to be uniform armament of these units. Where note also the language giving Congress the power to govern such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. In other words, the powers granted to Congress over the militia previously mentioned are not conditioned upon the militia being employed in the service of the United States. Presumably, governing is more extensive than disciplining and would include how the militia is employed. To add to the confusion over the handling of the militia within the federal government, the Constitution offers this language in Article 2, Section 2. The president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. To command is to govern. So it appears that the same power has been granted to the president as to Congress. That confusion of language, no doubt, has encouraged what could be called mission creep, the extension of the original intended mission over time. One wonders if this shoddy language has contributed to presidents ignoring the uh, requirement for a congressional declaration of war before initiating military operations on foreign soil. As we analyze the Articles of Confederation and compare them with uh, the Constitution of 1787, we should be conscious of both the similarity and differences of ideas. It is possible to do a crude cross-footing of these, as has been done in investigating Articles 1 through 7. There are six more articles to explore. In addition to similarities and differences of ideas, we should consider, consider whether the structure of the Articles could support the various changes in the Constitution as amendments to the Articles, and whether it was necessary to make all of these changes immediately or over time. Excellent question, Phil, because uh, that was the argument of the anti-federalists. There's other ways to uh, amend the Articles of Confederation than having to propose a brand new constitution. But I appreciate particularly you drawing the links and the parallels between the Articles of Confederation language and the language that we have in our constitution. Clearly, there is a development. There is some changes. And, and I think you're right to point out that the change tends in the direction of giving less power to the states and more power to the federal government. That's the, the general tendency of, of each of the, the articles themselves. And uh, as you rightly point out in Article 6, it talks about the relationship of the state in regard to can the state actually have kind of an independent relationship with a foreign power. And the answer is no. And the answer is no, both in uh, the Articles of Confederation that says no state without consent of the United States of Congress assembled shall send an embassy or receive an embassy and so forth or enter into any conference agreement or alliance or treaty. So you can't, as a state, act like 
you are a, a, a independent nation that can form a treaty or an alliance with a foreign power. That's for all the states in Congress assembled. That's for the United States. And again, obviously, the United States Constitution states the same. This is a, a grant of power that the states were surrendering to the federal government, saying that is a decision and an issue we will rely on this, on the federal government to do. No, none of our states uh, should actually uh, do that. Uh, and so you, you wonder in, in history, has uh, any of that been attempted at, at times where, you know, one state in the union wants to form some kind of a trade agreement with another country or um, enter some uh, agreement? Yes, uh, sadly, that has happened. California is an example of having entered some trade agreements with certain foreign countries and, and they haven't been disciplined as they should be because that's not permissible in our constitution. Uh, and the uh, corollary to that, of course, that uh, in Article 6 relates to uh, an individual who holds an office of profit or trust at the level of the federal government. They cannot hold two offices, nor can they actually receive any gift, any present, any payment or even any title of nobility from any king, prince or foreign uh, foreign country. In other words, they need to be loyal to these United States alone. As we've mentioned before on this show, we know that uh, the Biden crime family has gotten $1.5 billion from the Communist Chinese Party. It's like, whoa, do you think that might have influenced their decision not to really go after the investigation of the Wuhan supposed leak of uh, Corona and all that? I mean, was there something in that? After all, $1.5 billion is a lot of money. And that kind of bribe money accepted by a foreign government, by the Biden crime family, which we know that the the laptop from hell says that the big guy, which everybody agrees is Biden, the big guy always gets 10 percent. So hmm, we can calculate what that actually looks like. The reality is we know that money speaks and that if somebody's receiving one point five billion dollars then who are they actually loyal to? Who are they going to be doing the bidding of when push comes to shove or some disagreement happens between the United States and uh, the Communist Chinese Party? And uh, likewise, not only can they not receive something from a foreign government, no person holding any office of profit or trust under uh, this new government, the Articles of Confederation government, shall without the consent of Congress accept any present emolument or office of any kind, not only from any king, prince, or foreign state, but also they cannot hold two jobs uh, at the same time. That is, if they hold a job in Congress, they cannot hold another job because, again, the question would be one of loyalty. Uh, I live in a county here in, in Maryland where the uh, Speaker of the House in our state government, for more than half of his career, 32-year career, uh, he was the Speaker of the House, so perhaps the third most powerful man in, in our state capital. But he also held another job at the county level. And that job at the county level was with the Parks and Recreation Department. And he bragged on bringing all kinds of state money into our county so that our county had the best turf fields for the ball games that were played on those fields of any of the counties in Maryland. Wait a minute. 
We got benefits in our county. He brought the bacon home to our district, taking that money from the other counties of Maryland that didn't get the finest turf fields in their parks and recreation department. Clearly a conflict of interest when somebody holds two jobs, as well as a conflict of interest if you happen to receive a title of nobility. Uh, You know, some uh, king or foreign potentate wants to give you this title of nobility, which would make you kind of beholden to their government or in some way uh, leaning towards their government. And this is not to be permitted. And that's both under the Articles of Confederation as well as under our U.S. Constitution. By the way, there was a a famous General Schwarzkopf that received from England, I believe it was, a title of nobility. It's like, what is with that? That's not permitted. How did that happen? And and why didn't Congress slap him down? And why didn't the military discipline him for receiving a title of nobility from a foreign power when both the Articles of Confederation as well as our Constitution clearly state that uh, no titles of nobility can be received from any foreign power, nor, uh, in addition to that, can any title of nobility be granted by the United States government or by any of the states. So the whole idea very clearly stated in the Declaration of Independence, there is a creator God and we are all his creatures. We are all created by him and therefore we are equal in standing before him and uh, and before the law. So no one should have some special privilege or ability, uh, nobility kind of granted to them. By the way, when you look at what the titles of nobility actually do grant people uh, in many of those foreign countries, it grants them all kinds of special privileges that the other citizens do not get. The privileges that often wind up meaning they get a financial leg up in uh, in the marketplace. Uh, they get advantages that others do not have, uh, and they can enrich themselves while the other people have to go. It's like they, they got on the fast track while everybody else was uh, uh, walking down the street in, in, in contrast. So because we we're all created in God's image, our government, both in the Articles of Confederation and our U.S. Constitution, rejected any uh, favoritism that the government would show uh, towards one group of people as towards another. And so we're all to be equal under the law. Everybody is to be subject to the same laws. But what has happened in Congress? We find that Congress regularly passes laws that they exempt themselves from having to follow. They say, well, you have to uh, be part of Social Security, but they don't. They got their own special retirement plan that's very lucrative. Of course, it's all of our taxpayers' money going to pay for that retirement plan. But they don't have to participate. In in other words, they pass laws. They force us to obey where they do not have to obey them. That's crooked. And that's basically uh, kind of creating a class of nobles who are above the unwashed masses, us, us folks that have to uh, follow all the edicts that they hand down. No such thing should be permitted, and it was not permitted under the Articles of Confederation. Neither was it permitted in our Constitution, Article 1, Section 9. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. Now, in uh, the Articles of Confederation, it goes on to state not only can't a state enter into treaty or alliance with a foreign country, they can't enter into any special treaty, confederation, or alliance with another state that is in the union unless 
there is the consent of the United States Congress assembled. And that assembly must specifically and accurately identify the purposes for which that alliance is to be entered into and how long it shall continue. It's very interesting that some say the backdrop in terms of the meetings that preceded the Constitutional Convention, that the first one was the Mount Vernon Conference. That was followed up by the Annapolis Conference and then the convention in Philadelphia of 1787. Very interesting, though, that first one they often list in the in the historical uh, uh, pro- progression towards the Convention of Philadelphia. The Mount Vernon Conference was actually only two states coming together, Maryland and Virginia, to determine rules about how uh, the waters of the Potomac and the Chesapeake were going to be utilized by those two states. So uh, basically, Virginia and Maryland came to an agreement that was directly in violation of the Article 6 of the Articles of Confederation. No two or more states shall enter into any treaty, confederation or alliance, whatever between them, without the consent of the United States and Congress assembled and so on. So that uh, supposed backdrop for <laughs> the Constitutional Convention was illegal. What they did at the Mount Vernon Conference was a direct violation of this provision of Article 6 of uh, the Articles of Confederation. Our Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, states something very similar. No state shall enter into treaty, alliance, or confederation uh, and uh, without the consent of, of Congress. Now, the taxing powers of the states are also greatly uh, reduced. Now, under the Articles of Confederation, the state could not lay any imposed duties, which could interfere with any stipulations and treaties that are entered into and so on, so that the laying of duties or imposed had to be something that Congress would approve of, whereas our Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution adds to that, it it expands that, that without the consent of Congress, they cannot lay any imposts duties on imports or exports, except that which may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws. I don't know if any of you have ever traveled into California that's one of the states that on the land, that is on the roads, there's a checkpoint. Your car is stopped and they, they ask you if you have any vegetables in your automobile or if you have any fruits in your automobile. They then will, if you say yes, they'll then proceed to inspect that. They may confiscate some of those uh, because their laws are very strict in terms of what kind of uh, diseases they are prohibiting from entering into Uh, the state of California that would uh, infect their agricultural stock. So they can charge you the the cost of that inspection at the border of the state of California. And and that's permitted here in our U.S. Constitution. But they cannot charge you anything more uh, in bringing anything into the state of California other than what the inspection laws of that state require. Now, the rest of Article 6 and then Article 7 deal with the issues of war and the issues of who has the power over the armies, or we'll say the militias. And uh, both the Articles of Confederation, Article 6, as well as uh, Article 1, Section 10, clearly state that without the consent of Congress, uh, there's no uh, vessels of war are to be kept in time of peace by the state, uh, that there are no standing armies going to be kept by the state except its militia. And a militia is not a standing army. And it's not a standing army because all the members of the militia are just the citizens. You know, ages 15 above, usually to age 60, you're part of the militia. You're required to attend militia duty several days during the course of the year. You may have to go for a summer long weekend or, or a whole week in terms of training and discipline so that you're prepared to be activated if there's an emergency in the state. 
But the militias are under the state control. They're not under the federal control unless there is a declaration of war. Then and only then does the uh, president become uh, the chief over the militias of the several states. So both uh, restrict what the state can do in terms of its uh, war-making powers, and both say basically it cannot conduct war unless that state is actually invaded and or in imminent danger such that there's not time to get Congress to respond quickly enough to uh, declare war. So the, the paragraphs here in both the Articles of Confederation and the United States Constitution are very parallel in the restrictions they place upon uh, the states, but both of them assume and actually require that every state, and you're reading from uh, uh, the Article 1, Section 10, every state shall always keep up a well-regulated and disciplined militia, sufficiently armed and accountable, accoutred, and shall provide constantly, have ready for use in public stores a due number of filed pieces, tents, and proper quantity of arms, ammunition, camp equipage. That's from the Articles of Confederation. But the Constitution, although it doesn't uh, go into that same detail, it really speaks of the same principle. The commander-in-chief of the Army and Naval and the militia of the several states when called into actual service of the United States. In other words, the militia is under the government of the states, ruled by the, the standards set up by Congress, but it's governed by the states unless there is a declaration of war. Then and only then does it become activated and, and useful to the federal government to protect from invasion, uh, suppress insurrection, uh, repel invasion, or to uh, enforce the laws of the government. So. When we look at the militia, we see both in the Articles of Confederation design as well as in the design of our Constitution, the militia is not uh, an optional thing. It's absolutely essential. It's necessary for this free government to work. The reason why it's necessary, they understood that the militia could stand as a preventative against a tyrannical federal government. That is, if the federal government decides to hire 87,000 IRS agents and arm them to the teeth, which is exactly what's been done here with the the most recent uh, spending package that uh, Biden has uh, signed off on, that becomes an army against who? Against we the people, taxpayers in our land. And we don't have any defense against that army if we don't have a militia. So isn't it interesting that not one state in the union, except perhaps uh, Alaska, some argue that Alaska does have a functioning militia, but none of the other 49 states have a functioning militia. We are therefore sitting ducks to the kind of tyranny that the O'Biden administration is uh, is operating on and appears to be planning uh, a, a kind of tyranny using their army as they uh, arm and equip that with uh, millions upon millions of rounds of ammunition that they're purchasing and, and uh, training them with uh, semi-automatic weapons. That ought to be a, a big warning bell to us because that same O'Biden oh, administration says, oh, no, 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 you the citizens, you cannot have those semi-autos. Oh, but we're going to fully train and arm all of our 87,000 IRS agents with those semi-autos. What should that tell us? We can't trust this government. This government is not one that's actually following the Constitution. And our state governments have failed us because they have not maintained a well-regulated militia. It's interesting to see the Second Amendment is very clear. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Very clearly, the militia is not optional. 
if you want your liberty, if you want your freedom, you can only maintain it if you have a well-regulated militia, which means we in the states, the 49 states that do not have a militia, we need to hire people in our houses, in our senates, and we need to demand they do their job. And the governor of the state needs to do his job and reactivate the militia because it appears to me that we have a tyranny growing in steroids down in Washington, D.C., about to deprive us of our, uh, our liberty or maybe even our, our property or maybe even our life. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing a, it seems like the IRS is preparing for some kind of firefight against the uh, I thought they just used calculators and, you know, uh, green eye shades and pencils. And, you know, they were good accountants. But no, 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 they're going to be semi-autos in their hands and they're coming with flak jackets and, and uh, you know, all kinds of protective gear. So we better look out. And by the way, if you want to see the tyranny of, uh, of the IRS, I encourage you to look up on the web. I believe it's still available. I, I don't think it's been taken down or if it has been taken down, it, it gets put back up by someone else and someone else. Aaron Russo's film, From Freedom to Fascism. From freedom to fascism, and he began that research by simply asking the question of various individuals, including retired heads of the IRS, can you show me the law, the law that requires me to fill out the IRS forms that I annually fill out? Can you show me the law? Because I'd like to see the law that requires that. The odd thing about that movie is they never, ever, ever could show him the law, but they showed him a whole lot of tyranny as he exposes the tyranny in that film, Freedom from Freedom to Fascism. So the whole idea of war and the power of war, our founders were wise, recognizing that civil governments are dangerous. And when you give them power, unchecked power, then those powers are going to eventually be abused, including the power of a standing army. And Article 7 of the Articles of Confederation uh, speaks to this as well, that uh, when land forces raised by any state for the common defense, all officers of or under the rank of colonel appointed by the legislature of each state. So the legislature gets to appoint a certain level, as you're pointing out, Phil, but above that level, uh, it would be the federal government that appoints those and uh, there's some change uh, th th with the language of our Article One, Section 8, that Congress has the power to provide for organizing, arming and disciplining the militia and governing them when they're called up uh, or they're federalized. So this power, the power of war, is a very dangerous one that our founders, both in the Articles and the Constitution, restricted severely. And it's clear in our day this has basically been completely ignored. And the state militias, because they do not exist – our Second Amendment tells us we're about to lose our freedom because the militia is necessary for the security of a free state. Thoughts come to your mind, Phil? Well, first, I'd just like to make a minor comment about the Mount Vernon Conference. As I understand it, it could have been constitutional if it had limited itself to proposing an agreement and submitted that uh, uh, draft to Congress. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'd, li I'd like to kind of expand on this idea of uh, could the Articles of Confederation structure support all of the changes in the Constitution? And we recognize when we, we compare these two documents that the, the changes are not only extensive, but they are structurally different. Uh, there is no such thing, basically, as a federal judiciary and a federal uh, executive branch. 
for example. And I think we can accept the idea that uh, structurally, the, the Constitution, if you're going to accept the idea of having the separation of powers, uh, that the Constitution has a superior structure. No question about that. I mean, you can go to the Constitution and you can look at Article 1. You can say, okay, here are all the legislative uh, powers. Article 2, here are all the executive powers. Article 3, here are all the, the uh, uh, judicial powers. And likewise, you know, uh, the amendments are clearly in one area and so forth and so on. So the question is, well, could you really have uh, could you really have replaced the Articles of Confederation by simply amending them with all of these structural strengths, let us say? And the answer is yes. There's nothing in the Articles of Confederation and nothing in the Constitution itself that prevents these documents from being totally wiped out by a new amendment. It says all that language uh, is now uh, obsolete and we're going to use new language with one exception. And it applies to both documents. And that is that the states must have equal representation in whatever government is created. Now, you could go into the Constitution right now and the feared – um, convention of the states creates this monster, let us say. Well, the same rule would apply. Uh, you cannot amend the Constitution and do away with that principle. Once you've done that, you have destroyed the Constitution. So essentially, um, since that was not changed going from the Articles of Confederation to the, to the uh, uh, Constitution, there is no reason why the Articles of Confederation could not have been used as a structural foundation, because as long as you preserve that principle, you preserve the Articles of Confederation. So now, what is the what is the point about all of this this uh, exercise? What would happen? And this is this is kind of like alternative history, if you will. What would have happened if instead of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention saying, we're going to you know, wipe out the old Articles of Confederation and we're going to come up with a new uh, Constitution. They had said, but we're going to use the basic framework of the Articles of Confederation. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, that would be, they would be in a negotiation uh, mode because they knew that they still had to deal with, with Rhode Island and perhaps North Carolina in order to get them into the, the arrangement. I think their minds would have been more open to gradually moving towards a more central government. And there are some things that are wiser in that more central government in the Constitution. I'd acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the uh, most of the, uh, the people in the anti-federalist side were also acknowledging that. They were willing to make changes on tariffs and things like that in order to give a more sound basis uh, for meeting the obligations, the financial obligations of the federal government. And so the, the real issue, as you're pointing out, was the speed. You know, the Federalists are saying, we got an emergency. we got to do this right now. We can't wait. You know, and the anti-federalists said, well, let's slow down here. And, you know, and, and really, I, I agree with you. These could have been accomplished at a slower rate 
And as we pointed out on previous shows, the so-called emergency that they were touting, that eh, doesn't quite measure up, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And in fact, uh, I think the more likely route would have been that that uh, you might, for example, have uh, maintained most of the Articles of Confederation because I think most of the ideas were really incorporated in the, the Constitution. But you would have uh, a new um, corresponding Article 1, 2, and 3, which appeared in the Constitution. You would build those slowly and, uh, and at the same time pull them out from the, the basic articles themselves, you would build that those uh, um, build that language and that those powers slowly, so that you could say, well, oh yeah, do we really need this this much? And of course, I've I've mentioned in earlier shows that there was no emergency; it was totally contrived. Mm-hmm. Really, if you consider the nature of you know any any nation that is breaking away. And this was a geographically, certainly, and a significant population as well. But geographically, this was an immense area that was throwing off an existing government. And they had to do, do it uh, by demonstrating superiority in the, uh, in the field mm-hmm. through military operations. Wars are very costly. You should not expect to, to get through all of that had the, the pig pass through the snake, so to, so to speak, within five years. That's totally unrealistic. And that's what they were dealing with. But the Dutch were willing to come in and, and finance this during that period. And the Dutch created competition to the British. The British uh, uh, commercial class said, hey, we're not going to let the Dutch have a, a, an open market here for themselves and uh, to which we're excluded. Yeah, and there was competition for lending money. I mean, the British basically, in in a very few years, came right back in and uh, surpassed the Dutch in terms of the amount of investment in the New World, in the mm-hmm. you know North American New World. Amen. And, and the, the thing that you need to realize is that really the functioning of the Articles of Confederation, because Maryland was the last in the 1781 to ratify it. It was only six years, six years that it actually was fully functioning with all 13 states in the Articles of Confederation government. And by that time, the war is essentially over. Yorktown took place later that, that same year after Maryland had ratified. Not that there's any connection between Maryland's ratification and the, or, uh, you know, the battle at Yorktown. But the, the whole problem that was often being cited as the emergency was the war and its aftermath, but we had won the war, even though the Articles of Confederation were barely functioning during the war, and we were, you know, recovering. So that I agree with you. That emergency that was being presented was really a false, uh, a false narrative being uh, uh, sold to the people as to why this Constitution had to be ratified immediately. And the recovery from war takes a lot of time and economic recovery from the devastation that took place in various parts of the, uh, the 13 states uh, and, and the expenditures that those states. I mean, Shays Rebellion, we know, was because of the war debts that Massachusetts held. So Massachusetts was trying to pay off its war debts to get itself back solvent and uh, debt free, a good thing. 
but by uh, taxing the farmers heavily that uh, to accomplish that goal, I think they kind of went overboard and they were favoring their eastern mercantile interests versus the western farmers. And the farmers were the ones that were taking it on the chin and they were fed up with it. And that's why Shays Rebellion happened because uh, uh, of the debt involved. So, yeah, when you're recovering from a war, it, it is a serious and difficult thing. So I agree with you. I think this could have been done more slowly. It could have been done under the Articles of Confederation, and the states could have retained the balance of power, which is, uh, again, our founders believed, Madison, for example, in Federalist 45, believed that the balance of power between the federal and state government is that the state government had the majority of the power. The federal government just had power relating to external issues like going to war, making peace treaties, making trade deals and uh, tariffs of imports coming into the country, those sort of things. That's the federal government's business, and that's the business external to the country. Everything internal in the country should be handled by the state governments. So uh, we're talking about internal roads and approval. That's the state government business. That's not the federal government. They would have, uh, if the founders were alive today, they would be horrified to see the enormous powers that have accrued to Washington, D.C., and those powers have been all taken from the state governments in direct contradiction to what our founders designed uh, in, in that, that plan for our Constitution that they laid forth. You know, uh, again, with alternative history, I think there, were, there was an opportunity to look at the most dangerous threat to the, the liberty of the American people, and that is taxation. Um, you know, there were so many things that were thrown together, so many changes that were thrown together in uh, the Constitutional Convention that although there was a lot of talk about tax taxation, it was not sufficiently in-depth. I mean, there, were, there was not enough discussion and open-mindedness about that, that danger. Um, there should have been ironclad uh, provisions made in the Constitution, or if they were to amend the, the Articles of Confederation, there should have been ironclad provisions that would have prevented something like um, the, the 16th Amendment, which is poorly written, subject to interpretation, and certainly if you look at the way uh, it was so-called ratified, which is very questionable, um, you know, that kind of thing could have been prevented by a, a more in-depth discussion. And that, that discussion does not occur in an all-or-nothing environment, which was artificially created by the, the people who were promoting um, the Constitution. And when we look at the history of what's developed out of that, we now have a situation where not one line of the IRS code that we're all subject to, not one line of it was passed by Congress. Congress did not vote any of the legislation that is the supposed tax law of America that we are subject to. And by the way, that tax law, perhaps if Congress did it, they wouldn't do it any better. I don't know. But one of the things that's very apparent to any American who's uh, confronted this is that the tax code is impossible for anyone to know. In fact, the experts at the IRS themselves do not know all the time. They may know one section, their specialty. And I've read reports and people have, have testified that this has been their case there. You know, they call two different people at the IRS about some particular question and they get two different answers. 
And so you, uh, as the taxpayer, have a code that cannot be uh, understood and is not even understood by the experts. And so therefore you would conclude it's really impossible to perfectly fill it out some way, some shape or form. There may be some little things in a statement of the IRS code that's so voluminous, no person knows it, that you might have made a mistake. And if you made a mistake, they're after you. And now they're hiring, they're doubling the size, more than doubling the size of the IRS agents. And they now have a, 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 a they used to have a, a budget of, I think, $12 billion, and now it's $80 billion. So they've got an enormous army that can come after every American. And they tell us, oh, we're just going after the rich. No, 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 no. The rich have plenty of lawyers. The rich have plenty of tax accountants that are specialists that will protect their interests. It's the middle class that they're aiming the target at. So we shouldn't believe the lies of O'Biden and company that somehow it's just the rich they're going to soak. No, no, no. They're going after the middle class. And I would argue that uh, what we see developing is the death of the middle class in America. Uh, They are going to tax us. They're going to inflate the currency to such an extent that the middle class will not survive. And what we'll have is a country of the poor and then the super wealthy that are politically powerful, politically connected, just like in Europe with the, you know, old days where you have the nobility, the king. Those people, they've got all the wealth, all the land, all the power, and the rest of us have nothing. And by the way, the goal, that goal is clearly expressed in in an organization that many of the people in our government are following, the World Economic Forum, who has infamously stated their goal is that by 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy. That is, they're going to make you happy if you are, but you will own nothing. How's that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen if they steal us blind and they inflate the currency to such an extent that the money we may have saved or invested is worthless. You know, the inflation is so extreme that nothing that we have is worthless. We will own nothing. Uh, I don't think I'll be happy, but uh, I guess if if they drug somebody up and shoot their arm up with enough uh, poison or whatever, maybe they'll be happy because they're oblivious to to reality. That's where it looks like it's going uh, from my perspective. You know, if if there was an exception that required state uh, equality, and alternatively, if you if you violated that, you you destroyed your constitution. But if if there was that, if there is that one exception that prevailed in both the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, then similarly, there could be other exceptions as well. And what I'm saying is that that. I believe the principle that should have been embedded in the Constitution was that all citizens have an equal responsibility, uh, financial responsibility, for legitimate government, legitimate as defined by the powers granted through the constitutions. And so that that had to be the the uh, starting place. Um, and you say, well, wow. Uh, uh, the poor can't afford that, and so forth and so on. Wait, wait a second. Um, the services of government are supposed to be made available equally to all citizens. Okay, and if this is the service, uh, then all should pay for the service equally. You talk about equality. You know, I, I'm all for equality. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. And the, the fact that I, I, you know, it's usually from the statistics I've read that 
Uh, it's only 10% of the populace that pays somewhere 80 or 90% of the tax bill, that just 10%. So it is a situation where there is, there's a class of people that pay the majority of the taxes, federal and state. And then there's a lot of people at the bottom that pay little to nothing. Uh, and you're right. If you enjoy the benefits of the government, then, then you should be paying for that. And interesting, in the scripture, uh, in the Bible, the system that God established at Mount Sinai, it, it put that principle in that every person who is an able-bodied male above the age of 20 was to pay a poll tax. That is on their head. Each individual would pay the same amount and no graduated income tax. That's a communist idea. Everyone would pay the same amount, but it was small enough that even the poorest could afford it. Why? Because the government, the Hebrew Republic, was so small that the government functions were so little that you didn't need an enormous uh, treasury to, to support it. And in, in the Hebrew Republic, by the way, the militia was the army. There was no standing army. They didn't have a navy, of course. They weren't into that kind of warfare. But they, they had no standing army. Each of the 12 states had their own militia uh, that, that were very, very localized. It was a highly decentralized system of government. And only time that if there was a time of war, well, then, yes, all 12 tribes were called to send their militias together so that uh, we could fight against uh, the, the incoming invading armies. But there was no centralized structure authority. There was no king uh, originally. It was the Hebrew Republic, and it was led uh, by the judges uh, that you read in Scripture. But that was the system that God gave to them at Mount Sinai, a very, Mount Sinai, a very, very de decentralized uh, government. Uh, where if they followed his law and they held him to be their king, which was the idea, Israel's king was God, uh, then they would enjoy tremendous liberty. Yeah, we could even have two levels of citizenship, uh, recognizing that some people, for whatever reason, uh, may not be able to meet even a minimum under a very limited government uh, structure. Um, okay. Uh, for that period of time, they're unable to vote, mm, but they enjoy they enjoy every other benefit of a citizen. Mm. I think that's a that's a fair way to proceed with something like this. Now, there there are also opportunities for for charity here, and some people will say, "Well, okay, you're buying votes," but yeah, if if your neighbor can't make it this year because you know they've 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 had unusual medical bills or something of that nature, and you take compassion on them and you say, well, here's a gift. Um, you know, um, I, I'd like you to be able to, to exercise your right to vote. Hey, that's completely consistent with the idea of charity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there are ways to do this. But the one thing that we must recognize, I think, fundamentally is that the power to tax is the power to enslave. Any person who is required to pay 100% of their income is a slave. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are required to pay 50% of your income, you are a 50% slave. How many of us um, pay 50% of our income? To governments and, at and, all levels. Yes, at all levels, because you've got to add your county and your state as well as the federal. Yeah, all levels and include all the fees and the licenses and the registration of your vehicles. If you gather all of those together, uh, studies have shown that the average American family, if you gather all the taxes they have to pay to all the governments, is 50 percent or more. 
And so Tax Freedom Day, the day when the average citizen stops working for the government and starts working for themselves, is somewhere in the month of July. Yeah, Tax Freedom Day. Spend half the year working for the government before you actually can start working for yourself. (laughs) Uh, Well, we can restore our constitutional republic, but it takes a body of citizens who understand these documents, understand the philosophy of government of our founders, understand that there is a creator God, that our rights come from him and from him alone, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters. We invite you to the website, 1180wfyl.com. Check out the podcast. We're at the very bottom of the list. We the People, the Constitution Matters. Invite you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m.